Good morning. It's good to see you. Uh, my name is Jason. I'm the pastor here at City Church. And this summer, we are working our way through a series on the New Testament letter called Galatians. Uh, it's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Galatia. If you're wondering where Galatia was, is, think modern-day Turkey, uh, if you are up on your geography, and that gives you a sense of where these churches were that Paul was writing to. If you haven't been with us, let me just give you a quick background info on what's going on in this letter. So the question driving this letter is, on what basis are Gentiles, in other words, non-Jewish people, on what basis are non-Jewish people included in the church? You have to remember that uh, the Christian movement early on was birthed out of um, Judaism, and so as those who were not Jewish came into the church, it raised all kinds of questions. And the foundational question was that question, on what basis do, are they included in the church? In other words, must they be required to ad adopt Jewish customs and laws, or are they free not to do so? So Paul, the Apostle Paul, in the message that he proclaimed, the gospel, the good news about Jesus... Paul emphasized and made it clear that one finds belonging with God simply through faith in Jesus Christ and Jesus' performance on our behalf in his life, death, and resurrection. Well, there was a group that emerged in the church, a group of false teachers that began to say that, yes, Jesus is part of the equation. Jesus is important. However, you must also adopt Jewish customs. You, you must, for example, be circumcised, these kinds of things. And so Paul hears about this, and he writes this letter to speak into the issue, to speak into the situation. Uh, this morning, we are going to look at uh, the conclusion of chapter 4. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to Galatians chapter 4, uh, verses 21. We're going to go through the first verse of chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you're welcome to use one of the Bibles in the Purex uh, that you find in front of you. I'm going to read for us, um, starting with verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers and sisters like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit 
with the son of the free woman. So, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. There's a lot in that passage. I don't expect that you understood everything based on that reading. I've studied it all week, and I'm not sure I understand everything. So what I know we need to do is we need to start off by praying and ask for Jesus' help. So let's do that. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that even when we don't understand it at first, that we have your spirit to teach us and to clarify for us. And so we pray during this time that you would be at work in our hearts, in our minds, uh, pulling us, drawing us into your sacred story, particularly in this text. And we pray that you would teach us. And we ask that you would teach us in such a way that we wouldn't just gain information, but that we would actually experience transformation. And we pray that you would come and do this, find us, pursue us, search for us, wherever we find ourselves at this time, believing, disbelieving, unsure of what we believe. Holy Spirit, come, we pray, for the glory of Jesus and our good. Amen. I have a friend uh, from Peru, and he tells me that uh, when you're making a case uh, for something, when you're making an argument in Latin American culture, you do not begin with your your thesis or your main point and then develop it, but rather what you do is you first tell a story. You tell a story, and then you introduce what your main point or thesis is from the story that you told. Well, that's basically what the Apostle Paul is doing in our passage this morning. Paul tells a story, if you will, and he makes a point, uh, multiple points, based on this story that he tells. Now, we've actually, uh, for multiple weeks now, we've been acknowledging how Paul is such a tremendous teacher. And one of the reasons that we've identified that he's such a tremendous teacher is because he does what? He gives illustrations. He tells stories to give the reader something to hang on to, something to make it relatable. And we find him doing this uh, in our passage yet again this morning. Now, what Paul does with this story is he flips the script. He flips the script. What What does that mean? Have you ever heard that expression before? Well, when someone says that the script has been flipped, what they mean is that something has been changed or reversed, oftentimes rather dramatically. Or it has to do with a reversal of positions in a situation. It it means to turn the tables on someone. And so Paul tells this story. He gives this illustration to flip the script. Now, the better way of, of putting this, the better way of talking about it is that what Paul does in this section is he highlights how the gospel, the gospel story, the good news of Jesus, how the gospel flips the script in life. So we're going to look at how the gospel exactly flips the script in two ways. But before we do that, I want to look at the passage as a whole to get the context for Paul's message. So let's look at this story, this illustration that Paul gives. Verse 21, right off the bat, look at what Paul says. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? So he he asks a question before going into his illustration. He, He sets it up with this question. Before we get into the illustration, it's helpful for us to just take a look and understand this question 
that he asks. When Paul speaks of being under the law, we have to know what he means. What does Paul mean by being those who desire to be under the law? Well, here's what he doesn't mean. He doesn't mean that we are um, under a moral standard because we should want to be under some moral standard. So that's not what Paul's referring to. He's not speaking negatively about being under the law in the sense that it means being under a moral standard. Moral standards are good. We've been talking about that through uh, the series. Moral beauty is a positive thing. It's a glorious thing. Uh, Morals have to do with God shaping us into who we're meant to be so that we live in the way that we are designed to live. Morals, having a moral standard, is a positive, good thing. What Paul is referring to is trying to obey a moral standard in order to find belonging with him. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about using morals, using a moral standard to try to live by, to get acceptance with God, to get God to love you more, to make yourself feel better about who you are. In other words, to make yourself feel valuable and worthy in life. That's what Paul means here by being under the law. We could say it this way. Morals are good. Moralism is bad. Morals are good. Moralism is bad. Because moralism is basically taking morals and saying, I'm going to try my hardest to live according to this standard, these set of morals, in order to justify myself, a word that we've been coming back to throughout this series, which means to be declared right. And so moralism is taking our morals and saying, I am going to try to make myself right in life, whether it's with God or some other standard that we're using, in order that I might feel worthy and valuable. That's what Paul's referring to by being under the law. And he he asked this question, do you not listen to the law? This is confusing. So he's saying, those of you who desire to be under the law, uh, basically to uh, take a moralistic approach to life, do you not even listen to the law? The reason this is confusing is because Paul is, in these two uses of the word law here, he's using them differently. That first use of the word law, um, we already talked about. It has to do with specifically within Judaism, the ceremonial law. But the second time that Paul uses the word law, when he says, do you not even listen to the law, he's probably referring to the first five books of the Old Testament that are oftentimes called the book of the law. And so what Paul is, where he's going with this, is he wants to say that those of you who want to use God's ceremonial law in order to try to obey it, to really find belonging with God, do you not know that the law, the larger law, God's word, specifically in the Old Testament, those first five books, that those uh, books, that what the message of those books contradicts what you're saying and what you're doing? And so then we move into Paul's illustration. His illustration is not, um, uh, it's not new. It's not something that he has come up with, but rather he goes back to the law the law being the first five books of the Old Testament. And he goes back specifically to the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, specifically chapters 16 and 17, and then chapter 21. 
Why does he do this? Why this passage of Scripture? Because on the surface, it seems like an unusual passage of Scripture to make the case that Paul is going to make. Well, it's likely, it's at least possible, but even likely, that the group of false teachers who were making their way into the church, telling people that it wasn't enough to just believe in Jesus, but you also had to adopt the Jewish customs, you had to live by the law, it's likely the case that they were actually using this episode in the Old Testament to build their case and make their point. And the point that they were making is that unless you really become Jewish by adopting Jewish customs, then you are not really the true free children of God. And so Paul, what does Paul want to do? He wants to flip the script. He wants to turn the tables on them by using the very story, illustration, scripture that they're using to make their case. He's going to use it to to contradict them. So here's what Paul lays out. He lays out the story of Abraham, Sarah, and Abraham's concubine uh, named Hagar. If you're not familiar with the story, the story basically goes like this, that God had promised Abraham and Sarah a child. Not once, but more multiple times. And the child was not coming. The child was not coming. Sarah was not conceiving. And so eventually it gets to the point where they conclude, I don't know that we can really trust God's word. I don't know that we can really trust the promise that God has made anymore We have to take matters into our own hands. We have to, in this situation, we have to do life on our own because God's not showing up, God's not providing. So here's the plan. Abraham, sleep with the concubine Hagar, she'll conceive, and there's the child that we are longing for. And so Abraham does just that. Hagar does conceive and give birth to a child named Ishmael. As you might guess, if you don't know anything about the story, disaster uh, follows, right? Disaster follows. It does not go well for anyone involved in this story, anyone involved in this situation. And on the one hand, it might seem kind of weird, even disturbing, that Paul would use this story and Hagar, who is more or less an innocent victim in the story, she's used, it seems odd that Paul would use her as a negative example in the story while using uh, Abraham, Sarah as a positive example. But Paul gives us a hint as to what he's doing um, in verse 24. He tells us he's interpreting it allegorically. He's interpreting it allegory, allegorically or figuratively. And what he's doing here is he's basically highlighting the, choice, the choices of Abraham and Sarah. And so here's how we could maybe make these two categories. So he's talking about um, the two children, Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael born um, from Hagar, Isaac born from Sarah. Paul says one was born by a slave woman. This child was born according to the flesh. This is what he's outlining here. Um, He references Mount Sinai in Arabia. What What is this all about? Well, it's communicating outsider. It's outsider language that... This person, this child is on the outside. Um, He speaks of um, Hagar and and her son as bearing children for slavery and refers to it as the present Jerusalem in contrast to the heavenly Jerusalem, 
which he's going to speak of. So that's Hagar and the child that comes from Hagar. But then he talks about a child born of the free woman, Sarah. This child is born through promise, the verses tell us. Um, From Jerusalem that is above, a heavenly Jerusalem, the true Jerusalem, you might say. Paul's um, opponents, the false teachers, were claiming that they had authority from Jerusalem. But what Paul uh, points out to the Galatians is that their authority from Jerusalem is just in the present Jerusalem, not in the Jerusalem that ultimately matters, the heavenly spiritual Jerusalem. And he, Paul quotes Isaiah chapter 54 to help build his case here. All right, let's break this down. There's a lot going on here, a lot of detail. And if you're not familiar with the story, it can be really confusing. But he's using Hagar and the son born from slavery in contrast to Sarah and the child Isaac born from freedom to say this, that one represents acceptance with God by human effort and the other represents acceptance with God by God's grace. When we say God's grace, we're referring to his undeserved favor. It's the contrast that we talked about last week, spiritual slavery versus spiritual freedom. It's living by faith or living by trust in our own efforts to make things right in life. And it comes back to the choice that Abraham and Sarah made. They felt like they could not trust in God's promise of a child. And so they have to act They have to exert their effort. They have to put things into their own hands to make things better from their perspective. And so Ishmael, who was born, represents this way of of life. He's the product of this way of life, basically, of taking matters into our own hands, resting in our effort to fix things, as opposed to Isaac, who was born miraculously by God's grace, rooted in God's promise. Taking matters into your own hands or living by trust in God's grace. The punchline comes in verse 28. In verse 28, Paul says, Now you, brothers and sisters like Isaac, are children of promise. Why is this such a staggering and astonishing statement? Because what Paul is saying, remember, his heart in the previous section that we looked at last week, his heart was breaking for the Galatians. He was longing for them. He was grieving over them because the the message that they were getting from the false teachers was a false message, and it had um, the, the, the power to draw them, pull them into spiritual slavery, and Paul doesn't want to see that happen. And so Paul, through his writing, is doing everything that he can to communicate with them, So at this point, he says to them, basically, you Galatians, you non-Jewish people, you are the children of promise, not the false teachers who actually are Jewish, but who are confusing the message. You, by faith in Jesus alone, are children of promise. It's all about belonging, isn't it? It's all about being an insider versus an outsider. And what Paul does here is he flips the script. Because the false teachers are stubbornly confident. 
self-righteously confident that they are the insiders, that they, as Jewish people who are trying their best to follow the Jewish law as a way to earn and keep God's favor and love, they think that they are in. They think that they are offering the best way of life. And the Galatians are on the outside until they begin to adopt the Jewish law and live under it as well. But Paul flips the script and says, no, no. You Galatians, you are the true true children of God. And his language after that is strong. Notice that he says, but what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. Implication? Kick the false teachers out. They have no place in the church. They do not belong. Do not listen to their message. Whatever you have to do, remove them. So Paul uses this illustration, this story, to bring attention to what's going on in his own day. And it's a dramatic point that he's making. And it ultimately shows how the gospel flips the script. So let's look at how. Let's look at how, based on this argument that Paul has made, how the gospel flips the script. Well, the first way that the gospel flips the script is that religious and non-religious people are more similar than we think. Religious and non-religious people are more similar than we think. Look down at verse 1 of chapter 5. Look at how Paul begins this chapter. For freedom Christ has set us free, Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again, again is the key word, to a yoke of slavery. Why does Paul say again? What's he talking about? The Galatians were never guilty of trying to follow the Jewish law in their past. They are not, well, they're not Jewish, right? They were coming out of pagan backgrounds. So why would Paul tell them to not go back again to a yoke of slavery. Well, he has to be implying that there is some sense in which Judaism and paganism are similar. Uh, you know, however you want to put this, re- re- a religious way of life and a non-religious way of life. Um, however you want to conceive of it, think of it, this is what Paul is saying. Ultimately, that religious people and non-religious people are more similar than you think. How? Well, if we do an honest assessment of life, if we honestly evaluate life, I think that we have to admit that there's something wrong, don't we? We have to admit, um, of course, that there's something wrong out there in the world. We see evidence of it all the time. People are a mess. Places are a mess. People don't get along. You know, we could keep going and going. But something's not just wrong out there. Something is wrong in here. Now, if we're being honest, I'm being honest with you. There's something wrong with me in here. How could we talk about what's wrong? What is it exactly that is wrong? Well, it's rooted in this knowledge, this sense that we have that we are incomplete. 
that we need more worth or value than we think that we have. And so what do we do? We do all kinds of stuff in life in order to try to to enhance our self-worth, our self-value. We do whatever we can to uh, make ourselves look better to others. And the way that we could say this, when we start to then talk about, okay, what is the solution? This is our problem, that we, we, we have this sense of a need to belong, that we're on the outside and we're trying to figure out how to get on the inside, and we do this in all kinds of ways uh, in life. Well, what are the solutions to this? Well, one solution could be religion. Religion, and, and I'm, we've talked about this throughout the series, I'm using religion in a negative way here to talk about a way that we approach God to try to be good enough to earn and maintain his favor and his love. In other words, we try to live a good life so that we can belong with God. That's a religious approach to life. But some might choose the path of a non-religious way, right? There's no room for God in the formula. There's no room for God um, in life. And so we live apart from God. If we wanted to really define these, um, I I actually defined these three or four sermons ago, but I'll do it again in case it helps. Religion refers to a way of life in which we attempt to make ourselves whole through moral living. It's a way of life in which we try to make ourselves whole through being good enough, trying to be good enough. And it's rooted in a false belief that relationship with God can be earned by living according to morals. Non-religion, on the other hand, is a way of life in which we attempt to make ourselves whole through, we could say, secular living, apart from, apart from God. It's rooted in a false belief that freedom is found by living however we choose, because God is not our standard. Here's the ultimate point, the, the, the point that Paul is driving and how the gospel's flipping the script. Religion and non-religion are surprisingly similar. Why is that? You should already know the answer if you've been around because we've, we've been coming back to this question throughout the series. I'll say it this way. We can follow God and resist God for the same exact reason. We can follow God and resist God for the same exact reasons. Because what plagues us most of all as people is this desire, selfish desire to live apart from God and to make life work on our own. It's this idea, this belief that we can do it. We can address the problem in here. We can address the problem out there we can do it. And so religion and non-religion are both approaches to life in which we're trying to make ourselves whole on our terms. They're both about our performance, what we must do, how we must act. And both fail us in the end. They both fail us in the end. Why is that? Well, we've, we've talked about various reasons for this. Um, both can lead to deep insecurity and anxiety. How do we ever know when it's good enough? How do we know when we've actually arrived? How do we know when we 
can say, you know what? I've made it. I'm whole. I'm completely whole. And this can produce unbelievable anxiety in our lives. And you know this from experience. This isn't hypothetical. I know this from experience. You know this from experience. When you're regularly trying to exhaust your energies and trying to be good enough to make people like you, to love you, to find belonging with them, whether it's people or God, it is exhausting and it produces unbelievable anxiety in our lives. But it can also lead to pride, can it? It can lead to pride. And this is, we have to be aware of this because this especially, you know, the anxiety stuff, we don't want to cling to that. We try to figure out how to get rid of it. But the pride thing, we cling to. Because the, the, the pride thing can give us false glimpses of hope. And what I mean is that, you know, we, maybe we feel like we're doing pretty well in a certain area of life. And we look at somebody who's failing in that area of life. We look at them self-righteously. We judge them. We, we, we look down on them. And we, we use that to elevate our identity in, in the world, in life. Do you, do you see how um, fake this is? Do you see how destructive it is? It, it, it's ugly pride. Because what we're basically saying is, you are not as good as I am. You are not measuring up. Now, uh, no, don't talk about this area of my life. I'm talking about this area of my life. I'm going to focus on this area because I'm making more progress, I'm doing better, and that's what gives me my sense of worth. And you over here, you're helping me with my sense of worth because you're failing miserably in that area. We do this kind of stuff all the time. And notice what Paul talks about in the passage in verse 29. But just as, that, just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. And so Paul is drawing attention to how the false teachers are basically persecuting these Galatian Christians. They're persecuting them by putting the weight of the law on them, by giving them a burden they cannot carry. And this is how it always usually follows. Persecution usually always flows out of some form of self-righteousness and pride. That we can harm others, we can do wrong to others because they don't measure up. They aren't as good as we are. And this is exactly what the false teachers are doing. These Galatians, they don't really measure up. They're not, they need to adopt the Jewish law to be like this. And so it leads to persecution because persecution of these people actually helps to elevate their sense of who they are. Now, this is so uh, critical for us to see and to make these connections. The, the gospel, one way it flips the script is that the, the gospel actually, uh, obviously, brings about um, personal flourishing. Because when we learn that our acceptance with God is not based on our ability to try to be good enough, but it's based on the fact that Jesus was good enough for us and we can rest in that, enjoy freedom in that. Not only does it lead to our personal flourishing, but it can lead to flourishing outside of us. Because now we don't have the need or we have less of a need. It's a lifelong battle. We have less of a need 
to manipulate others, to use others, to persecute others, to do whatever it might be to others to elevate our sense of self-worth. We don't need to do that because our self-worth comes from the fact that we are deeply loved by God through Jesus. And so how, what is the most significant way that we as followers of Jesus can bring, lead to or, or help bring about flourishing in the world around us? It's by us resting in the gospel of grace. Because you know what that leads to? It leads to love of God and love to others. True love of others. Because we can actually, it, it comes back to humility. Humility is the key word. The gospel makes humble people. The gospel makes humble people because we come to a point where we recognize my my standing in life, my standing before God, the fact that there's a sense in which I now have it all together because Jesus' all-togetherness covers me, I now am free to love others. I'm now free to love others because I'm humbled. I, I don't worry about comparing myself to others or trying to seem better because the standard is Jesus, and I'm loved by him, and through him I can now love other people genuinely and authentically. So religion, non-religion, by and large, these are the two scripts that we follow in life. These are the two stories that we live by. And throughout the letter to the Galatians, Paul is introducing, reintroducing another story, Another way to live, the gospel. He's flipping the script, or like we've been saying, the gospel flips the script. Let's look at the second and final way that the gospel flips the script in these passages. And here's what it, how it happens. Those who belong in God's family are often not who we think. So the first way the gospel flipped the script was that religious and non-religious people are more similar than we think. And the second is that those who belong in God's family are not often who we think. We mentioned how the, the language here, the concepts here, it's all, it's all about insider-outsider. The false teachers are coming in and they're saying, hey, you Galatians, you actually are on the outside until you begin to look more like us by following our cultural customs. Once you do that, then you'll be on the inside. Your faith in Jesus is important, but you know, we're, we're better than you because we plus Jesus have these cultural customs going for us. So you start following those customs and then maybe you too can become on the inside. And as we saw, what is Paul's um, really provocative and stunning conclusion? Galatians, through faith in Jesus alone, you actually are on the inside. You belong in God's family the false teachers, not so much. As long as they are going to insist on Jesus plus something else, they have no belonging in God's family. They are on the outside. And so you, you can imagine for these Galatians, they, they were young Christians still. We, we might imagine that as this false teaching began to make its way into the church, Maybe there were thoughts such as this. You know what? I knew it. I knew it was too good to be true. That for me, as a person coming out of a pagan background, that it simply would just rest on uh, trust and belief in Jesus alone. 
I knew there was going to have to be more, and here it is. We have to try to follow the, the Jewish customs. You could, you could imagine like that possibly going on in um, the minds and thinking of these Galatian believers. And Paul is wanting to encourage them. He's wanting to, to as we've talked about, uh, pull them away from spiritual danger back into the freedom of the gospel. You uh, may be here this morning, and maybe you are the kind of person um, throughout your life who has said things like, I'm not a religious type of person. Religion's not for me. You know, I mean, I have neighbors that say things to me, say things like, you know, if I were to walk into the doors of your church, lightning would probably strike. Um, These kinds of things in which we tell ourselves, you know what, for whatever reason, I'm not good enough. I could not be a Christian. I could not be religious because of my past, because of my present. All of these things. But Paul, through the gospel, says to us this morning that all of those who actually confess that, because we all should be confessing that, each and every one of us, if we are really in touch with our need and the incredible, miraculous power and uh, power of God's grace, what we would say is, I'm not the religious type. I'm not a good candidate for Christianity. But Jesus. Jesus. We all should be saying that. So I, if you're here this morning and you've come in and maybe you've, you've kind of have a hard heart because you're like, you know what, there's nothing that you could say, there's nothing that could happen to me in my experience that would change my thinking. I just don't fit in with the religious type, the Christian type, but here's the the news for you. You actually, because of that thinking, you're on your way to becoming a Christian. I mean, that's the irony here. You're actually, in some ways, you're further along than those who claim to be religious but think that they measure up because of their human effort. And so you're, you're halfway there or, you know, wherever you, whatever amount we would say, what's now needed? It's not that you need to now like come into the church and start following specific rituals or customs. Uh, it has nothing to do in a sense with how you must now act. It has to do with you now taking it to the, the, the next logical step and saying, I am absolutely desperate for the grace of God in my life. I am desperate for Jesus, and I turn to him because he alone is able to make me belong, to make me acceptable, to make me loved. And so I I encourage you, I urge you, go the rest of the way. Go the rest of the way. And for those of you who are mixed up about the gospel, who are confused about the gospel, And maybe you've made yourself confused over the years because maybe you came into the kingdom of God um, believing wholeheartedly that it's not based on your performance or your ability to live up to a moral standard, but it's on Jesus' ability to have it all together for you. But maybe along the way, you've drifted from that. Come back home. Come back home. Forsake spiritual danger. Come back to freedom. And here's the incredible thing that that Paul 
uh, points out to us, especially from this Isaiah 54 reference. Um, I think it's Isaiah 54. My, I, on my way over here, I realized that I forgot to charge my iPad. Um, and so as soon as I got here, I charged it in. Well, five minutes ago, it died. So um, I believe it was Isaiah 54. It probably says it in the notes there. Um, so that's where we are in the sermon, in case you're wondering. So if this goes on for another hour, just start to say, time's up, stop. And now, because I did that, I probably just really lost my place. Um, All right, we're saying this is probably Isaiah 54. It's definitely in the Isaiah 50s. We'll at least go with that. By quoting this passage of Scripture, Paul is saying that, in effect, you might feel barren. You might feel absolutely barren in life. But God can cause fruit to come from you. Why? Because it's not up to you. Confess your need and turn to God's power and his ability to save you. Back in Paul's day, um, for a woman in his culture, the ability to, to give birth to a child, to have a child, was really what gave her a sense of meaning, a sense of value, and a sense of worth in life. And now Paul is using that analogy, and he's saying that some of you might feel that. You might feel that for whatever reason, now in the religious Christian sense, that you're barren. You have nothing to offer. You're not good enough. Maybe you feel like your past choices have disqualified you. Maybe you feel like the choices you're making in the present, like even as you sit here right now, that you are disqualified But God says, no, that does not need to be the case. I am a God of grace. I'm a God of welcome. I'm a God of love. Come home. And so that's where we conclude because I don't know if there was more in my notes. But come home, right? Come home. Whether you are religious, you think yourself to be religious, you think that you are a really good candidate for Christianity, forsake that kind of thinking. Cling to Jesus, come home. And maybe you are non-religious as you've walked into this building. Come home. You're right. You're not a good candidate for Christianity. You're not a good candidate for Jesus. None of us are. Own that and turn to Jesus and receive his unbelievable love and mercy. Last thing there. For freedom, Christ has set us free. I mean, Paul can't... Like, I could just imagine Paul, like, getting to this part and thinking to himself, how how can I stress freedom more? All right, I'll say it this way. You were freed for freedom. There's a whole lot of freedom going on. This is the point that Paul is making throughout this letter. That when you begin to introduce human effort into the equation of trying to belong with God, you are going down a road of spiritual slavery. You will destroy yourself and others along the way. Rest in freedom. The freedom that is ours because we don't have to work. We don't have to try hard to get God to love us. We are loved because Jesus worked for us. Jesus performed for us. And we receive that. And now in the coming weeks, what we're going to see is it doesn't mean that we just then live however we want. We actually have true power to begin to live like children of Jesus in the world. Let me pray for us.
Jesus, help us to stand firm in the freedom that is ours because of your work through your life, death, and resurrection. I pray for this diverse audience, wherever we find ourselves currently on the spiritual spectrum, pray that you would reveal yourself to us, that you would grab a hold of us by your grace. For those of us who have become too religious, for those of us who have become maybe self-righteous in our faith, I pray that you would enable us to forsake that and to find life fresh life in you once again as we rest in your freedom. I pray for those who have come in and they believe themselves to be far from the religious type. That's actually probably good news, good thinking. We pray that you would help them to skip over the need to be religious and that you would, by your spirit, would take them immediately to Jesus and his love and his acceptance for them based on what he's done. The reality is is that we're all the same, Jesus. We're all broken in need of recovery, and we all only have one source to look to for life, and it's you. So grant us life, we pray, for your glory and our good. Amen.